2: And welcome to Butter. I am Craig Revelle. Joining me today, I'm very excited about my guest, Steve Medelsky. Steve is an author of a crime book called Undercover. Steve was a police officer for 21 years with the Hamilton Regional Police Service. He finished his policing career with the Combined Forces Specialist Enforcement Unit of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Before retiring in 2017 as a sergeant, he specialized in traditional organized crime informant development, and undercover operation as an operator and also as a covert handler. Stephen is a cold case columnist with Blue Line Magazine. He has covered true and organized crime stories for various newspapers. Stephen is a criminal psychology professor at Mohawk College in Hamilton, Ontario. He also lectures about organized crime at Queen's University. Stephen, thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, thanks so much for having me, Craig. I really appreciate it.
2: Great bio. And obviously, it's a world I knew running the Toronto Police Union that, put it simple, when the shit hits the fan, we would get called (laughs) in with any undercover work. What we would call is long-term undercover, short-term, you know, quick nickel-dimes buys on the street with the drug squad. And one of our, as we used to call it, one of our biggest clients back then were uh, undercover officers. But you've written this book, Undercover. You really get into some fascinating stories what's gone on pretty much globally out there on undercover cases. First question right off the bat, what made you get into the book and write something like this?
1: Well, ever since I got out of policing and, and started teaching and and writing, I thought, you know, the expression intelligence work rarely ever makes the headlines in front of a newspaper or the six o'clock news. And that couldn't be more accurate. You might see a quick blurb of a three or four year project you know, on the news and, and that's kind of it. And I wanted to give the general public a front row seat in the driver's seat of what it's like to do this kind of work, because, and as you could probably attest, you know, most police officers that haven't worked in intelligence, they don't even know about a lot of these operations, yeah. let alone the general public. And I wanted to take people into that world and make them realize what kind of work these men and women are doing, how they're risking their lives, and how they're not even doing this for any extra pay. Right, They're doing this because they want to put really bad people behind bars. And I like, Craig, how you set that up, because there are so many different types of undercover operations, You know, short, quick drug buys, or the long term. Uh, a lot of these stories in my book are men and women, Canada, United States, a nice mix of from the 1970s to current, who've worked really long-term undercover plays and not only sacrificing and risking their lives, like near-death experiences. There's one story where an undercover officer actually was murdered in the book, but a lot of them are sacrificing their families. They're not seeing their families for extended periods of time. So it just to take people into that world, to give them just a, a small glimpse of what happens in the underworld from undercover operators perspective
2: the undercover people I would come across, their acting abilities were far greater than any actors I had in any of my TV shows. <laughs> the, these men and women are acting. Some of these people are incredible. They had to be. It was life and death.
1: Yeah. And you know, I couldn't agree more. And It was an adrenaline rush for me interviewing all these people because it brought back great memories. And in the introduction of the book, I tell a couple of little quick stories about myself and set it up for the readers. But- I like to use hockey analogies. And I right away said, my experience of being an undercover operator and a handler is like the minor leagues of like an AHL farm team. The stories you're about to read are these are the, the men and women who really are in the big league of this kind of work. And so many common themes developed. These were all re- as a result of first-hand interviews as well. And one of the major themes was. All the undercover operators said, you can't teach street smarts. You can't teach this thinking on your feet quickly. You can go to undercover school and the training and whatnot. But if you don't have that innate ability to be a quick thinker, to act, it's really that acting ability because that's what it is. But the one difference is it's not a movie set. And in this type of police work of covert work, there isn't a director on the side that's going to say, cut, let's do it again. There you go. Yeah, You know, and it's, this is, there's no lights, there's no extras, there's no catering trucks or Winnebago's, this is real life. And the one dangerous thing, Craig, is some of the men and women in the book, they were so good at what they did that the risk factor, I call it the two side risk factor, that there is a very high probability they would get killed because they were so believable as whether it was a biker, whether it was a mobster, whether it was a hitman for hire, and then the flip side is if they were ever outed as as a cop, an undercover cop during any of these operations, that would have spelled you know serious bodily harm or or definitely death as well. So I mean that acting ability, it's just was so key in their cover stories and backstories and having an explanation for everything. Because the one thing I found fascinating, and, and I knew this from my career, but it was really interesting to hear especially some of our American counterparts talk about it, the background checks that these criminal organizations do, whether outlaw motorcycle gangs or uh, traditional organized crime, were more in-depth and stringent than a legitimate government agency. So, I mean, these operators had to have their stuff together and that their backstory and backstopping and that acting was so key.
2: As a handler with these undercovers, what would you be looking for as the project was going on? Are you looking for some, were you to a point where you might have to pull them out because of something?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I ended up doing probably more handling after when I was a sergeant. And the one thing that was really important was keeping the undercover operator kind of separate from the investigation. You didn't want to, they weren't involved in in the operational meetings and all that. But it was the, after each undercover play. You know, bring them to a safe house or a safe location, sitting down with them and debriefing, Mm -hmm. you know, what had happened in that, that one specific operation. Because their safety, uh, not only physical, but, you know, emotional, uh, mentally, psychologically, you want to ensure that they are, you know, doing well post operation on all those levels. And it's really imperative for them to have that alone, quiet time. Not only to digest and decompress from the operation, but then to sit down and do their notes. Because that's even more imperative. And that's and that's another thing that's a really amazing skill is not only the acting ability, but you know, you could be in several hours long play or, or even a couple of days or even much longer term. But you have to remember in great detail because you can't pull out a notebook or a stand-up pad you know, in the middle of these operations. So it was really important for me as a handler to ensure not just the undercover operator, but the whole operation was moving smoothly ahead. And for that to work effectively going forward, it really rested on the undercover operator's shoulders. So there was a lot of pressure. In the States, they call it like a case agent, mm-hmm. uh, which is really the equivalent of, of a undercover handler. So that was really key, Craig, was to ensure they had that decompression time during the investigation. When I went and did my undercover training through Criminal Intelligence Service of Ontario, Jack Dancy was running that the CISO undercover part. And Jack was one of the first undercovers in Ontario to be trained from municipal service. Because in the early 80s, it was mainly Toronto Police, RCMP, and the Ontario Provincial Police. Jack did very, very, very experienced undercover operator. And in one of the little uh, snippets of his career, he did a, uh, it was a a murder for hire. Uh, Another one was when they had to, while they're posing as bikers, get close to a murder suspect. And they did. It was a several months long investigation. And the target took the bait. The target really believed that Jack and his partner were outlaw motorcycle bikers, and everywhere they went, whether it was in his undercover apartment, his car, uh, everywhere he had a wire on. Every conversation was recorded, and very incriminating conversations. At one point, Jack had to tell the target because he kept talking about the murder he committed with his partner, and. Jack in his undercover role actually had to tell him to shut the, you know what up because that's what a real biker would do. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so when it, when you talk about testifying, even though they had all this damning firsthand, you know, we talk about the best evidence rule in policing and there was video as well. So you have the target on video audio over the span of like three or four months, just talking incessantly about this murder and right down to the type of bullets they used and the route they took from the murder scene. And Jack was still on the stand for three to four uh, full days testifying, even with that firsthand evidence from the target. The operation isn't over when you you do your last undercover play, because now your real identity is going to be exposed. And one of the first things they do post-investigation is they let the target know that who you thought was so and so is really Constable Jack Nancy with the Durham Regional Police. So it's never over. And to give you another example, uh, Jay Dobbins with the ATF, Jay infiltrated the Hells Angels in the state of Arizona. And he was undercover for two straight years. Wow. He had young kids, never got back to see his kids. And he's in a world where all these guys, obviously they're extremely violent killers. They're drug dealers. They're arms dealers. They are up days in a row, you know, on methamphetamine and Jay as an agent obviously can't do that. So just trying to stay up and play that role and the energy drinks and the stress and the acting. After that two year undercover operation was over, there were several arrests. And five years after This is five years after Jay retired. His house in the middle of the night was firebombed and burned to the ground. And luckily, Jay, his wife and his two small children escaped. But every every possession they had was destroyed. So when you talk about these undercover operators, not only are they risking their life, but the psychological trauma for some of them after and the impending threat sometimes never goes away. And Jay is a textbook example. I give all these people street cred because it was just such an honor to have them not only talk to me, but to be a part of the book. I asked Jay, if you were if you could do this all over again, would you? And he said, 100%. Yeah. He would do it.
2: I think most that, of them are like that. I think the answer would be with most of them would be. Because they are special people. There's no doubt about it. 100%. How do you feel? Like my involvement sometimes was when the operation was over and there was a, a legit threat against the undercover officer. We were a little different with the with the Toronto Police Union. We would help protect the officers because we didn't have red tape. You know, the service in question might help out with extra protection, having an address flagged, extra security, extra cameras. But we would go even further because. Our belief was we didn't have the red tape, so we would make sure that that officer was protected. We try to change the attitude of a police service, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but we were trying to make them say, listen, just because they were successful, it's over. The threat is still there. And we would purposely go out to get people we knew, legit security companies, for months, if not years, after to protect the officers.
1: I found that, too, with some of the American counterparts Once the operation was over, it was some of them kind of felt like discarded, put to the side. Mm
2: -hmm. I
1: really think in this line of work, you know, when you look at police investigative units today, uh, I know where I work, they call it the CASA, child sexual assault unit. You know, every six months, those investigators sit down with a psychologist because the investigations they're dealing with, we both know, like when you, some of these things you never forget. You don't. Dominic Polifrone, who got really close to probably one of the most dangerous criminals in criminal history, Richard the Iceman Kuklinski, a mafia hitman. He killed for pleasure. He used poison, fire, shot people, stabbed people, froze people. And Dominic worked without a net. He could have been sprayed in the face with cyanide at any moment. And Dominic said something really telling, which is right near the end of the book, that Undercover operators today have it more difficult, have a more difficult daunting task than you know in the seventies, eighties, nineties. Because when you look at then, there were no cell phones, there were no cameras, there were no listening devices. They would use the old Nagra wires, but there's there, there's so many spy gadgets and the technology is over the top that the safety of the undercovers now is is probably more volatile than it ever has been facial recognition. I mean, it could keep going on and on, but the whole thing that's important is, and this is where to sort of tie it back in the handler situation is you have to really be conscious and cognizant of the state of mind with an undercover operator, because there there can be some very stressful operations and it doesn't just end when the court process is over. There should be more mandated follow-ups with, with the operators to ensure they're okay has the
2: training increased is it is the training for these people up to par now or could there be better
1: training yeah it's a really good question and and the one thing i'm I'm five years going on five years out of the game so i can't really speak to really the last five years but you know the training's there but can it can it be everything can be improved Mm. everything can be improved and I, i think one of the one of the problems, I would say finding, lack of a better term, sort of a, an untainted undercover operator is it's really imperative not to have a presence online. So if, uh, you know, I remember when I applied and I was just an undercover operator sort of in a, in a pool, uh, I wasn't in the provincial pool, which is a much more experienced operators. I went through CISO to become a handler. And work some pretty interesting cases on the other side of the fence. But one of the main things is not, not only is not everyone cut out for it, but the, the selection process is really stringent. Because one of the things you could get gonged on right away is if you're on Facebook and Twitter and your your pictures out there and the likeness of you is out there, these are where these things like facial recognition mm-hmm. could come into play. The last thing you want to be is sitting in a drug department and somebody surreptitiously takes a picture of your face and runs it through a facial recognition software and it comes up with a match, but with your real name and occupation. So in terms of the training, I would think from my experience and even talking with people for the book is just the technology on its own has to be something undercovers are highly cognizant of and aware of.
2: One group that is far more experienced and smarter than, say, 20 years ago are the bad guys. These organizations are so far ahead now compared to just some Yahoo that we're going to target and try to put away for a long time. (laughs) These, These people are very, very good at what they do and they're
1: smart and they use the computer system, like you said. These organizations, these accused, they learn a lot of these police investigative techniques. Under the Canada Evidence Act, we can protect. Some of those intelligence techniques, but they're listening, you know, when these cases go down and they're learning and they're adapting. And the one thing from a police perspective, trying to keep up not only with the technology of of criminal organizations, but the money, the weaponry, the global scale of some of these groups, it is a daunting task for police organizations to sometimes keep up with this too.
2: Yeah. When I was running the union, I would be approached by internal affairs and say, listen, we need your help because organized crime was trying to infiltrate a police service. They were trying to put somebody through the police college. At the time we called the third world gang or organized crime at the highest level. They were trying to infiltrate police services. And I hear a lot of it now. And that's one issue that is frightening. And that, to me, that's how sophisticated
1: they are now, even attempting
2: something like that, which which does happen.
1: It it really does. And another one of my passions in policing was informant development. And I used to teach a class to recruits and, and other groups and whatnot. And the one thing I would say is you always have to assess what the motivation is for that person. You know, confidential informants aren't always bad people or criminals. Sometimes it's, it's regular citizens that want to do the right thing. But the majority of my experience, it was handling people that were embedded in criminal groups. And they would even tell me when I was meeting them with, obviously, a partner that they're encouraged to corrupt officers. And that's why I always would tell the students, you could be corrupted by a cup of coffee. I would always make sure when I met an informant that I remembered how they took their coffee. There's no problem bringing them a coffee because it builds that rapport. And they're, some of them, believe it or not, you know, just the fact that you remember they take a double-double, that sort of goes a long way with them. But I always said to the younger officers trying to get into that type of work, I said, you can never receive anything in return. Because as soon as you take something, it's now you owe me something. So in the biker world, the mob world, if they can corrupt somebody on the inside, and you know what, the, the last few projects that have been taken down on the province of Ontario, there's, there's always some form of corruption, because that's how organized crime thrives. Yep. They look for a weakness in whether it's COVID and the, the money the government was doling out. They will expose that. They're looking to try to expose and, and corrupt an officer. So they're exposing that. Anything they can flip to their advantage that helps them, they will do that. So it's, I mean, and that's another thing, Craig, with this book is that type, this type of intelligence work, even like things like surveillance, undercover work, informant development from a risk potential for a police service. It is some of the riskiest work a police agency can get involved in.
2: Yeah, it is. It really is. Well, Stephen, listen, thanks so much. Fascinating stuff. The uh, book is Undercover.
1: And where can you get it, Stu? Thanks for having me, Craig. The book is on my official webpage where you can order. It's underworldstories.com. All one word, underworldstories.com.
2: So listen, thanks so much. Fascinating people. Listen, read this, uh, Undercover, the book. It's great stories and from a real expert on the uh, topic. And look forward to having you on again, my friend.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Craig. It was a pleasure.
2: Anything with the podcast, go to InfortCopwater.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico.